Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You've got to begin with the end in mind. This is the Think Big Property Podcast. When Young earns means from property development, and Tyrone, that's me, has means of questions. In this episode, we're going to continue our discussion on boarding houses and look at the differences between renovating an existing property and building from scratch. We find out who are the most important people you need to have on your team, some of the aspects you need to think about that you might not know and much, much more. The interesting question we'll be discussing is whether it is better to renovate or build a boarding house. We start by hearing Nyang's preference and discussing the differences between both. My preference just from the outset is I prefer to build from scratch and I'll go into that a little bit later. That is my preference. I think there is definitely a place for buying an existing house and extending it. So, you know, a couple of case studies that I've looked at with clients recently is let's say on the south side client mine. 15 Ks out, found a house for low threes, let's say $340,000, brick veneer at the front um, and probably 20, 30 year old building. So it did have four bedrooms upstairs already, plus um, being two story, um, it was it had some big storage area underneath. So I think definitely one of the pluses with uh, extending an existing building is it might be in a building that you already own. So you don't have to essentially buy something else uh, and acquire something else. So that's definitely a, a plus there and you may have had tenants in it. It might be four bedroom renting for 500 bucks a week and you might want to increase that to $1,000 a week if not more. So buying existing can have definitely its benefits um, and, and you've got existing infrastructure there. You'll have walls, you'll have roofs, uh, you'll have car parking. So there's a lot of pluses. Um, the issues I do find with that sometimes is that obviously the building, whether it's 5, 10, 15 years old, is not designed to have what you need for uh, a five bedroom, five bath play. So, for, for example, um, the tenant that I, sorry, the client that's doing one there on that south side project is that they don't have any upstairs, there's no balconies. So, these old um, properties don't really have any balconies. There's a landing to go upstairs, and we convert that into one balcony. But if you've got four tenants upstairs and they don't have a balcony and they smoke, where are they going to do it? Right? So you can give them a courtyard downstairs. Don't get me wrong, that's a good gesture, but people are lazy. I'm lazy. You're lazy. Human beings prefer, especially on weekends, <laughs> especially on weekends, especially on weekends, right? They'll have a glass of wine, maybe have a cigarette, have some friends over. Um, is They're just lazy. So my point is with ex- existing houses, there's definitely pluses with existing construction, but the layouts just aren't ideal for it. They can be inefficient with um, hallways, uh, downstairs, a lot of the times, I'm not sure what you found in, in Sydney there with existing if it's two-story, but often the times in Queensland, they're not legal height. 
it's like 2.2, right? 2.2, 2.3 and legal high is 2.4. And you know what? That's four inches can make a huge difference because when it's not legal and someone has an, a fire, and I know I come back to the Childers incident and it might be extreme, but my point is that if something happens and you've given them a living area and it's technically not, Firstly, someone dies, you go to jail. Secondly, you're not going to get an insurance claim. So um, my point is that, yeah, existing, that is one of the challenges. So to solve that, and it may or may not be a long-term solution, is my tenants, sorry, I keep calling my tenant, my client there is looking at digging out the concrete floor by another four, um, sorry, uh, yeah, half a foot or so, pouring some new concrete there to make it legal height. It's almost like you got to gutter in the whole house. Like, you know, you literally move all the walls, move everything and start from scratch internally and just keeping the frame of the actual structure and then just relaying it out. That's almost what you have to do with the renovation. And it might actually even cost more to do that by sounds of it compared to just building brand new. Dollar per square meter rate, renovation is always going to cost more than construction, right? Dollar per square meter rate. Um, in this instance, the cost to do it might be 250000 to do that uh, renovation, structural renovation. They've got some of their own teams and that might come down to 200000 instead of two fifty, which is okay. So, in, in, look, you compare that to a new build, two-story, which is four seventy. Single story might be three three fifty. So you still there is a still a significant saving on that. So um, my point is that yeah, the pluses you've got existing, you save some money on the construction side of things. Um, the minus is some of the existing uh, infrastructure that you've got. Um, yeah, it may not be efficient, may not be workable. Um, like I said, no balconies there, moving um, the floors or the ground underneath the house there. Um, and and the, the house might be right, but it may not be positioned in the right way or the right location to maximize the car parking. So, yeah, what, what are your thoughts, mate? Give me some feedback. I wouldn't, would love to know as well, like would you have to go through a council approval to do all these things as well in, internally because it's stuff that you can't see outside. Like I know with renovations, just simple cosmetic and stuff like that and maybe some structural, you don't really have to go through council. But um, is this a major, you know, I guess renovation structurally that you would have to apply to council to actually get approval to be done? It would not be a difficult process. It's a pretty straightforward process if you have the right builder uh, to do it. Um, yeah, so it's pretty straightforward. I think the other pieces of the puzzle that most people don't have is the builder who builds new houses will not touch this and then then you'll need to find a builder who specializes not only in renovations but renovations in creating mini boarding houses as well because it's a classification change from a what's called a 1A to a 1B that applies nationwide because it's the building code of Australia. Um, so my point is that, yeah, it's not just thinking, okay, I'm going to do this. This can be done and it can, but it's finding the right builder who can do it for you and do it legally as well. Because any builder or any carpenter can put up walls and studs and things like that, but you've got to get the fire rating correct. You've got to get the um, yeah, the legislation and the tick the boxes, the building approval, the certifier. Um, so my, my point is on paper, definitely possible. Um, I think the other thing which is compared to a vacant block of land, which is different, is you're going to have to look harder to find this dwelling. And it's okay, you know, if you're willing to put in the time and look at five to 10 houses a week to find this dwelling is most houses will not, existing houses will not suit what you're looking to do because it might be single story brick house or it might be two story, three bedroom Queenslander, which is very, very typical. So um, that's only a meter off the ground. So um, versus something that's 
uh, nearly legal height or legal height underneath and the ability to fit five tenancies in. So my point is that it's a filter versus if you're getting a, a vacant block of land, it's a clean slate, you can put the house where it is, it's a lot easier, a lot more cookie cutter system. Um, but having said that, if you've got an existing building that has three or four or five bedrooms, that has the roof line that's already over the, the bedrooms, it, it's quite easy to add if if the boxes um, are ticked there. What's interesting, and I wouldn't, wouldn't mind actually just sort of running through just to summarize what we've kind of talked about is what, what are the specific professionals that you may need to work on with the renovation? You mentioned a specific builder. It can't be just any builder. They would need to make sure that um, you know they can meet the requirements. You also talked about fire ratings and also, um, I guess, making sure and checking certain things. It sounds like, do you need to engage like a, a town planner or architect? Like some, who are the, some of the professionals that you would have to engage for this to all work and get the right advice and actually implement it properly? Essentially, the two main players would be a builder and a certifier. So a builder and a certifier. And if a builder is specialized in this particular area, then they will have their own certifier. So a certifier is a person who signs it off at the end of the day and, and gives you what's called a certificate of classification, also um, certificate of occupation. So that allows it to be signed off and then to be lived in uh, as the designed use. And that essentially is critical because if you don't have that and you've got tenants moving in, your place is not insured. <laughs> it's not an occupiable, legally occupiable place. So those two players, um, certifier as well as a builder, and they are very, very specialized. I'd say only 1% of the building population, uh, one, understands it, two, um, complies with it and three is able to execute on it because it is if you think about it, it's a boutique play most builders out there and i don't blame them they prefer to be cookie cutter builders uh, the, the metricons the dixons the tamawoods where they just want to build cookie cutter houses get in get out get paid because they're all about volume this is very bespoke uh, very boutique um, and yeah, not much of it is cut and paste a, a lot of it is um, boutique to be able to fit in certain dimensions um, and they go through the checklist. It sounds like there's a lot more work that's involved in doing a renovation. So if you had an existing, say, four-bedroom or five-bedroom single-story house to actually reconfigure it because they don't naturally have you know, existing um, kitchens within each one, you'd have to somehow remove that kitchen and then build up more walls and so forth and therefore change it. Plus, on top of that, adding more fire rating walls and so forth, that would also cost um, some time to actually figure that out. So it sounds like a renovation might be you know okay if you've got an existing property but it sounds leading towards like you know doing it properly it would probably be starting with the clean slate because then you can configure everything the way it is but say there is someone who has an existing you know four bedroom five bedroom house and they do want to convert it into something like that such as boarding what do you think it would be sort of the i guess logical steps to go and approach this initially because there's probably a lot of things that they need to look into first to, to ensure that they can do this. I think a big part of that is getting the right contacts and I suppose that's what we provide in our programs is having the right contacts and saving the time. Like I said, I was looking for something like this for 10 years to figure it out and, and you know, I've been doing deals, heaps and heaps of deals without even needing the right contacts for this particular uh, transaction or type of deal. Because I was doing strata titling, you know, in my 20s, I was doing strata titling, buying townhouses, building houses. So I was very much mainstream. This is, you know, a bit left field there. Um, you do need the right contacts. You do need the right contacts. I think the first step is finding, like I said, a builder 
who can do this. It may take you weeks and months to find the, the right contacts there. And uh, because some of them, like I said, is uh, most builders won't touch um, renovations uh, in that instance in this niche. Uh, the ones that do do this niche, they generally like to do the um, new builds. They don't want to touch the renovations because part of it, it's a bit fiddly for them and it's just not part of their business plan. They want to be able to have a clean slate, bring in their teams A to B, let's go as fast as we can. So, could you engage with, say, maybe a, like a tradesperson, like a carpenter, and get plumbers and electricians and do all that kind of stuff to do the renovations? Almost like as though you, you are actually running a project kind of thing. You could. I wouldn't recommend it simply because you got to think with begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind, and you could do, you know, add five kitchens in there, but I think you'd run into trouble uh, if you don't have the end in mind uh, with the fire ratings already in play, um, with the heights. Uh, with the widths of certain uh, rooms and bathrooms and things like that. They're just re requirements that you know, if you were doing a, a cosmetic reno, a basic reno of a kitchen and bathroom, I'm sure you'd get away with it. But here, I think, yeah, there's a lot more uh, room for error and a lot more expertise required. So I think, yeah, definitely finding a builder and a certifier coming back to it would be critical. So doing it yourself um, or you could work with the builder and the certifier where you find that person and then they allocate roles where you, you basically, if you want to be um, in charge of the kitchens and the bathrooms, you still pay them a builder's fee for overseeing the project, organizing design, organizing the fire rating, the inspections, the insurance. Um, yeah, there's other parts like it's not just typical residential investment insurance. There's specific insurance for it as well, as well as specific uh, rental managers that we suggest people use. So, yeah, if we're just talking about the practical side of things or the physical side of things, that's one thing. But there's the management and then there's the uh, fire inspections that need to be done regularly uh, as well as well as insurance, um, yeah, just in case there is a fire or a problem with the property, last thing you want is spend a quarter of a million bucks on a reno and then there's an incident, there's a fire um, and then you, you don't get a payout and the house is unoccupiable. So, um, yeah, lo lots of vulnerabilities there. It, it does open a, a big, big, I guess, can of worms once you actually explore it in a lot more deeper and it sounds like there's a lot more in-depth to actually get these boarding houses all set up because you've got a lot of, I guess, requirements that need to and a, a different councils, um, I guess, talking specifically because you're, you're mostly in Brisbane here, does each council have different requirements for these type of things as well? Yes and no. What I mean by that is big part of it from a building point of view. Firstly, there's a building point of view, the Building Code of Australia that very much overarches uh, all of Australia with terms of building codes and fire ratings. Uh, I think the council in terms of uh, approvals are more so the number of tenants that can uh, legally occupy the building as well as car parking requirements. So, you know, with five tenants, you might need uh, two car parks or with nine tenants, you might need five car parks. So I think that's the other consideration in terms of councils is uh, car parking spaces, a uh, number of tenancies. Um, because if you think about it, on 400 square meters, having one neighbor versus five neighbors, there's gonna be a lot more noise. There's gonna be a lot more traffic. So councils are very, very conscious of um, yeah, making sure they don't get increased number of complaints about your property um, and, and that's often what happens when you have a high density of living, um, car parking in the street, people blocking garages, oh, sorry, driveways as well, uh, rubbish being thrown over the fences. I know it sounds funny but that does happen. Um, parties, 
um, yeah, just altercations generally. So uh, I, I think that's why some councils, uh, and rightfully so, they're a bit more gun shy on this kind of uh, occupation. But having said that, you know, density is a problem that a lot of councils, especially in CBD, are dealing with. And this is a good way for um, yeah, managing the density or allowing for density occupation without necessarily building high rise. Coming up after the break, we'll find out the different ways he's adding value to his properties. I wanted to make my buildings a little bit more unique by adding extra services to them or adding extra value. How to find the properties that are in the right position to get the best value. People aren't willing to pay for it and it's costing you more to build. So it's all about efficiency and all about sweet spots. What young or inexperienced investors might not know about the property industry. A reality check people need to understand uh, and that's what makes this uh, property so challenging and uh, enticing because yeah, not, not everybody can get into it uh, as well and you've got to figure out ways to how to create that capital. So that's next and you're listening to the Think Big Property Podcast. Next, we talk about car parking. As Nyung has mentioned, he's allowed for car spaces or garages on the development. This is where people start to get their head around it. Um, coming back to my project where it was 18 meters wide, um, because it was narrower, it actually became longer because uh, normally a 800 square meter block is 20 meters wide by 40 meters deep. So this one here, because it was uh, narrower, I think we're close to 45 or maybe 50 meters deep. Um, and I gave some land back to council as part of it as well as I think it was 828, 40, something like that. Anyway, the way I've done it is I've pushed the buildings as back far as I can to the rear setback. And that opened up some space at the front. So initially, I was going to do car parks and, and some people, they have garages. So they might have uh, with a two-story, they typically do a double lock-up garage, two separate single lock-up garages. They might keep one garage for themselves as a storage and the other one they, um, for their own stuff, whatever they've got. And then they might put another garage, uh, allow one of the tenants to rent one of those garages. So extra rent for them, which is great. In my particular instance, I've gone quite differently is initially I was going to put carports up um, but I've changed my mind with the influence of the builder we're actually not going to put any carports up whatsoever it's just going to be a, a hard stand so that's a technical term for just concrete with lines on it and if you imagine two blocks of land side by side there's a common driveway up the middle you, you have three car parks on the left turn left 90 degrees or so or 45 degrees and then on the right there might be four car parks so all up between the two lots of five tenants, call it 10 tenants, will have seven car spaces which will be allocated um, to the tenants. It's almost like a unit space, I guess. You've got some visitor parking slash also tenant parking. So, that would be a minimum requirement, seven for 10 tenants? Is that what the council has required? No, the minimum requirement is actually two, I think it is. Um, yeah, two for five and then that's what from what you've said is, yeah, doing the maths, there's going to be three people potentially on the street. So, the, the challenge with that and that's why when you're looking at doing one of these is I suggest you get close to infrastructure, you know, like busways, train stations, shopping centers um, because then, yeah, basically what you're concluding is let's say you've got two buildings 
next to each other and you've only got four car parks for 10 tenants, that's six cars on the street and your neighbors are not going to be happy with you. That makes absolute sense because I was going to think because it's also the demographics that are being targeted. If they're professionals working in the city and they're, they're pretty much busy on the go and they, they're happy to commute you know, via public transport, ideally, the infrastructure is going to be a key component that you're close to so it's walkable distance. Even a metro, like say we, we built something like this in Sydney, if you set it up correctly and you put it built it somewhere close to like a metro, there's no point even having a car because you just hop on the metro only it takes like you know 30 minutes to get into like the city that quickly now compared to driving which will take an hour so like it doesn't make sense why would you own a car it's going to cost you more to run plus it's going to take twice as long as to hop on you know com- comparison to public transport so and even w- with the economy changing with uber and with you know all this sharing economy of cars I think more and more people are going to be not even having a car eventually down the track and people are just going to hop on the app and go, yep, let's go and car share or let's just borrow this car for the day and then you don't even have to worry about maintenance costs because I think that's the biggest thing. We've got a lot of cars idling, sitting in stations. Like for example, you go to a station car park and you just park there and sit there eight hours idle while they're at work. That is potentially huge, huge amount of resources that could be tapped into and used for people who really do need to you know, travel. So, yeah, that's another story altogether but I totally understand where you're coming from because it makes sense to do it close to infrastructure. That's why the existing house renovation sometimes with car accommodation can be a pain if the building's set far towards the front but having said that, you just work with what you've got there. Um, and in my instance, my other consideration with the carport was also giving them storage. So I mentioned at the beginning there, I wanted to make my buildings a little bit more unique uh, by adding extra um, services to them or adding extra value. Uh, in this instance, my aim would be to give them a shed each uh, for storage. So you know, it's not a lot, but it might be, like I said, a meter wide by three meters deep for a surfboard, a bicycle, um, just to yeah, as we know, sometimes we store stuff that we don't even use. But having said that, you know, if it means that they stay there for longer, um, yeah, it cost me, I think a shed is only like $200 and then you got to install it. Um, yeah, you put it down and it'll sit there for a decade, two decades um, if the tenant uses it or it's an, an attractive uh, part because I know other landlords won't have it. Actually, just curious out of the top blue, do they, is this a common thing anymore that they've got attics as well where you can actually store stuff in the roof? Is that something that, that people would be interested in? Because since we're talking about storage, could we potentially use the roof as storage space too? So, we are talking about housing commission before or uh, Centrelink tenants but uh, look, I, I think that is an option. The challenge I find in a lot of roof spaces, it's, it's just it's not much height in there. Um, and there's bats, as in B-A-T-T-S, insulation. Uh, it's dirty, so it's not really set up for that. Could you do it? I'm sure you could with you know with a bit of sheeting, MDF. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of those undesirable places. I think, um, yeah, not many people use it for the typical storage, but I think it's definitely possible. It's fascinating. I guess, yeah, there's so many different ways to actually provide extra value in, in and out externally of these places. I would like to jump into and just ask a little bit more. So, maybe let's, we can talk about now this new build because what would be really interesting about the new build is people would be asking, okay, what are we looking at for like what kind of size block of land? Uh, what I mean, we talked about where would be ideal. And then once you've sort of found the block of land, um, would you consider subdividing and then how would you go about doing all that? I think subdividing is a separate topic maybe we can look at that on a separate play and and joining that in um 
but I think a, a vacant block of land, there's a couple of options here. And the considerations that my clients look at is, should you build uh, two-story or should you build single-story? That, that's, I think, one consideration. The other consideration is, do you want cash flow or do you want capital growth? So why, why that's important is generally my clients who build two-stories are more likely to get and want capital growth. If you're building single-story, you're less likely going to get capital growth. Uh, obviously, that's coupled with the suburb as well, but um, generally a, a single-story building will be of less value long-term than, than a two-story building and less desirability. So having said that, I, I think um, a block of land, um, anything, you know, roughly 400 square meters and above, you can do single story, roughly a 200 square meter footprint. Anything roughly 350 square meters and less, you generally will need to go a, a two-story footprint to be able to make it worthwhile, i.e. get at least five tenants. So that, that's kind of like the rough gauge of, of blocks of land there. Now, I've got a client who's just doing a subdivision now, 1,000 square meters, cutting off 400, keeping the 600 at the back. She's building uh, roughly 300 square meter low set there. That's quite a generous proposition there. Um, like I said, with mine, it's 800 square meters cut into two, each of the blocks roughly 400 square meters and I can build a low set. So yeah, anything less than 400, roughly 350 and less, you really need to go two-story um, because of just the dimensions, the side setbacks, the rear setbacks, car accommodation and just to make everything work. And you said that I guess two stories are more desirable compared to a single story. Is that due to the fact that there's more space in the two-story? That's the reason why it would have more capital growth in the future? I think what you'll find is when you look at these designs, a two-story building, um, the way it's designed is roughly four beds upstairs and one big room downstairs and, and that can be more desirable or adaptable to a five-bedroom house which is a big family versus what you'll find with the single-story ones. Because they've got less space, there's not much room for um, general usage like for example a media room or a big lounge dining room right it's very very compact and every room is purpose-built for the mini boarding house so when you walk into it it's very hard to say you know what a five-bedroom family is going to live in this because you've got hallways you've got doors locked uh, you've got five bathrooms it's very um, individualized per, per tenant for the five tenants versus the five-bedroom two-story with the four beds upstairs and the big living area downstairs, the big living area downstairs might be used for a tenant during the mini boarding house play. But as a backup, it can always be used for a big family, big kitchen, big lounge, kitchen, dining, play. I was just thinking, you've said it right there, it's just whether or not it can be converted back to the normal residential housing that people would probably use it for a family compared to say, you know, single story where, well, where are you going to put the, you know, central kitchen or the, the big dining space and living area? You'd have to knock down a few walls and make adjustments and even with those with bathrooms in it, it would be very, very difficult to do as well too or it probably, it wouldn't be difficult, I'd probably say it would just cost quite a bit to do. So, that's probably why. Okay, that makes absolute sense. Now, I guess people are wondering what are the numbers behind some of this because it sounds really good and we did talk about a little bit about uh, I guess how much it costs to, to do some renovations and so forth in our previous episode but you know, let's just have a look at numbers um, comparison because as we've talked about units are going to cost a lot more. You got to pay council contributions. You got to do all this other stuff which by the end of it, you know, it just doesn't make sense but this actually stacks up really well. 
run some numbers, maybe your example, I guess, in Brisbane, just an example to, to sort of give people what kind of rental return you can expect, how, many, how much is it going to cost to build, etc. All those interesting you know, factors that, that make it uh, very, very positive cash flow and viable to do. And that's a good example of joining a couple of dots together is generally what we aim for, what we're looking for is a tenant that'll pay around about $300 a week. And, and that can range from 280 to 330. I usually find that it can top out around about the 320, 330 mark. Uh, for those who are familiar uh, with Brisbane, you know, the suburbs like Morningside, which is 4Ks out, or Hendra, which is near the airport, roughly 10Ks out. You know, I've seen people build two-story buildings and rent them out. The issue with uh, these ones um, and with any market is this income ceiling, right? There's an income ceiling and no matter how big the rooms are, it might be a bit more generous, you'll generally only get up to about 330. I haven't heard 340, but it's roughly that as the ceiling per room, per week, per tenant. So it doesn't really make sense for anyone to make it more bigger. It actually just, if you stick within what the average is, then it's better just to stay with that because even if you gave more space, people won't be able to afford it anyway. You can't charge it. So uh, people aren't willing to pay for it and it's costing you more to build. So it's all about efficiency and all about sweet spots. So uh, roughly you know, 5Ks out, out to about 12Ks out is a good sweet spot for, for various reasons. You don't want to get out too much further because of the desirability is not there, infrastructure is not there. And that, that's generally speaking in Brisbane City Council. In, in Melbourne, you know, there's stuff that's being done in Geelong that is very, very lucrative, getting similar rents, roughly 300 bucks a week for a five-bedroom place. Um, so I think that's one consideration is that people got to realize that there is a cap, income ceiling cap per tenant per room and then you got to look at, okay, how do you make the build costs efficient and not overspend or overcapitalize for a project like that. So, um, so roughly call it $300 a week to keep you um, just general numbers, five tenants, that's $1,500 a week times 50 weeks of the year, just use some rough numbers again, we're talking roughly $75,000 a year uh, gross rent. And that's why it's so lucrative. Um, on mine, let's call it 300 bucks a week. The build cost, roughly call it 350. Build cost, roughly 350 for a low set. This is 350,000 we're talking about. Correct. Yes. Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, um, in that instance, because I subdivided it and I bought it really, really well, the land's going to cost me roughly 300K. So, so just give it rough numbers, 350K for the build, call it roughly all up 700K per building in land. So with a gross rent of 750, sorry, 75,000 a year and a cost of roughly 700 grand, you're talking yeah, around about 10, 10.5% gross there. Um, I have just generalized numbers there. For the Typical investor, though, they probably won't be able to get a block of land for 300K because I bought it really, really well and I subdivided it and I created equity uplift. Yeah, those blocks are worth you know, somewhere between 350, 370, maybe 400 each with 50 to 80 grand equity in them each. Um, my point is that the typical investor may pay an extra 50 to 100 grand per block of land um, and they get you know, somewhere between eight, nine, maybe 10% if they've done a good deal. I mean, that's still very, very good rough numbers. I mean, every deal is going to be different. Every location is going to be different. I mean, we're just talking specifically about Brisbane because we're using this as more of a case study example. But I'm just wondering in terms of, say, finance, and we probably will need to go spend a bit more time in another episode to talk about this is 
financially, how do you actually fund a deal like this? Because I think we mentioned at the beginning, uh, how, yeah, will banks actually view this as being a residential and will they actually lend you up to the 80%? And even for the costs as for building, will they lend that to you as well? That's a really, really interesting question. And that's one of the downsides of this is if people get into something like this, they really need to get the head around that from a finance point of view, you may be able to get into it as a residential, but once you're done, once you either renovated it and extended it or you've um, built it, um, essentially, it's probably going to be closer to a commercial play, i.e. you're going to have to tip in some equity and uh, maybe the valuations will come in low. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I've also got another example for one, let's say, in Melbourne for, for numbers just to give you an idea as well, just so we're not just a uh, Queensland or Brisbane biased is that um, yeah a, a typical scenario with uh, one of my clients in terms of let's say purchase uh, he did a splitter which was a two under two lots let's say the block of land was worth three fifty and he was building two story call it four seventy right let's call it um, eight hundred roughly k eight hundred k cost um, the issue was the valuation came in hundred grand short. And here's the thing, it was on the north side, about 10 k's out, close to the, reasonably close to the airport, about 10 minutes away from the airport, that in certain suburbs, when you're building more expensive buildings, dollar per square meter rate, which is what it is because it's got more kitchens and bathrooms in it, there's a ceiling to the valuation, right? There's a ceiling to the valuation. So in that area, the ceiling of brand new five-bedroom houses, two-story, may only be 700 grand. So he might cost him 810 or thereabouts, but the valuation ceiling is only 700. So one of the downsides in this particular process, whether you're renovating or building, is that you may have to tip in an extra 50, 100 grand worth of equity. These are just rough numbers um, because of the valuation reference is a residential reference, not a commercial reference. And it doesn't mean that in two years' time, you may not be able to use the rental income to be able to refinance the property and add that to your serviceability. But my point is that when banks look at it, they look at it as a residential, pure residential, five bed play, and they'll value it accordingly. And therefore, you might be short. Uh, and that's a consideration. So that is a, a stumbling factor for a lot of people that they don't know about. They don't know that they don't know that once they sign the contract and they go to the bank, it can take multiple valuations or multiple banks to get it through. And you might have to tip in uh, 50, 100 grand cash extra um, and there's pluses and minuses of that obviously if you don't have it that's going to be problematic having said that if you've got to tip it in it makes the property more cash flow positive but more capital intensive so you've got to actually take that in consideration when you are purchasing and considering doing a boarding house is that you will need a lot more capital slash cash up front or equity if you want to use that to actually do these things because i guess it, you, you are building something that you might not necessarily get a valuation on that would be meeting the market because as you just said you know if you build and it costs you eight hundred thousand and the area is only valued at seven hundred thousand because it's residential it sounds like you may have made a loss of seven hundred thousand but it's actually you know in this instance you're doing a cash flow play because the cash flow will actually sustain this for the long term and eventually you know it will catch up but you you are looking at a very different angle compared to say building you know a, a five 
bedroom also five unit apartment which you know if you subdivide it each one into it or strata title each one into it you'll get a better valuation on those it's just spot on and that's the thing that people get to get their head around is this is a cash flow play primarily it's a cash flow play and therefore it can be quite capital intensive it is also a hold play so what that means is you're going to be uh freezing or putting in capital that will be stuck um, to refinance it which is a solution people come up with is challenging as well like i said is you may not be able to increase the value based on the fact that even though a normal place would rent for six seven hundred dollars a week here you're renting it for pretty much double that if not more but the banks will not recognize that because they might cap out the rents at six percent as well let, let alone nine ten percent eleven percent so it's just something, a reality check people need to understand uh, and that's what makes this uh, property so challenging and uh, enticing because, yeah, not, not everybody can get into it uh, as well and you've got to figure out ways to how to create that capital, whether you do buy and sell of other deals and be able to fund it that way. Coming up on the next episode of the Think Big Property Podcast, we'll be diving into the topic of no money down. I think getting money partners, if you are going to do it, you need to get look at the real core reason why you're doing it. The different types of models when you're starting off with your money partner. You might start off with a certain model. I do suggest that if people are looking at it, a profit share model is a good way to, to look at it because it's scalable. If you've got the money, then why would you want to use someone else's? James Packer is a billionaire. Why does he have a public company, right? Why does he use other people's money? And, and the one word comes down to firstly is leverage and the other one is risk. And that's next time on a Think Big Property Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.